disruption zone. Opportunity lives where the status quo dies. Talking to the greatest innovators, disruptors, and off-the-wall inventors, we can scrounge up. You laugh, you'll learn, you'll be inspired. Now, here are your hosts, Leland Conway and Cameron Mills. All right, it's the Disruption Zone. I am Leland Conway. We are thankful for every single day that we are not censored by the big tech and the mainstream media or whatever. So we're back for another episode. <laughs> I'm really excited about today's episode. Um, it is with a guy who I have been fascinated with uh, for a long time. I've heard him on Joe Rogan's podcast. I've heard him on Mark Sisson's podcast. I've heard him on several other podcasts, and every time I've thought, geez, I'd like to get that guy on my show. And when I reached out to him, he said, yeah, I'll come on. His name is Dr. Sean Baker, and he has a website called MeatRx. That's M-E-A-T-R-X. He's a medical doctor, and he eats nothing but meat, and he advocates an all-meat diet. I mean, 100%. Basically, steaks every day. It's a fascinating conversation. We're going to talk about why, in some circles, there's a belief that plants are actually not healthy for you. We're going to talk about meat. We're going to talk about what type of meat to eat. We're going to talk about what this does for your body and the fact that maybe it's not for everybody. All of that is included in this conversation. I do want to make sure I make it clear that nothing in this conversation, even though we're talking to a medical doctor, is to be construed as medical advice. But again, I will tell you that I have a lot of respect for Dr. Sean Baker. And uh, if you're looking for answers, maybe you've been on the paleo diet like I have been for years, and uh, maybe you have hit sort of a wall, and you're going, how can I take this to the next level and get where I want to be? Maybe this is your answer. And so you can go to MeetRx and check it out and, for yourself. That's what I always tell people. Again, I'm not dogmatic about this stuff. I just know that eating paleo, whole foods, healthy foods, dropping processed sugars, dropping most of the carbs from my diet has changed my life in a positive way. And that's why I like to talk about this issue uh, and share it with others because it has changed my life in a positive way. So without any further ado, let me say this before we get into our conversation. A big thank you to our sponsor, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. They are at 6200 Hit Lane in Louisville, Kentucky. You can stop by the store and talk to Michelle Kelly or George. They're the designers on staff, and they will help you design your dream kitchen. Now, I'm not just saying this because they're a sponsor. I'm saying this because I believe in them because they did our kitchen. And the only people I ever let sponsor this podcast, and this this is really true, the only people that I will ever, ever let, and I get a lot of requests to sponsor my podcast, the only people I will ever let sponsor my podcast are going to be businesses that I believe in, that I have either worked with personally or I've done so much research on them that I know that they are what they say they are. And that is the case with Louisville Cabins and Countertops. They did our kitchen before we moved to Colorado. They, I believe that the great job they did in our kitchen was the reason our house sold in less than a day. Uh, it just, it was a beautiful house, but it, the, the kitchen made the home. And you could see it when you walked in the door. And I just, I still to this day believe, will always believe that the work they did in our kitchen helped us sell our house in less than a day. So, you can find them at LouisvilleCabinetsAndCountertops.com. You can give them a call at 502-930-3304. Whether you're doing a turnkey kitchen remodel, meaning you want a whole thing redone and you don't want to bother with it, or you're a contractor or a do-it-yourselfer, they do have quality cabinets in stock that you can go buy and pick up. 
if you're a do-it-yourselfer or a contractor, or again, you just want to talk to one of their designers and have them do the whole thing, they got your back. It's LouisvilleCabinetsAndCountertops.com. All right, without any further ado, let's talk to my good friend, Dr. Sean Baker. Dude, I am so excited that Dr. Sean Baker, the Dr. Sean Baker, the carnivore extraordinaire is on the podcast. What's going on, sir? How are you? Hey, man, it's good. Thanks for having me on, Leland. Yeah, I'm just uh, sitting out here in the backyard having a nice day. Uh, just uh, had my fill of steaks in for the day, so I'm good to go. How many steaks a day do you eat? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I generally, like, you know, when I'm not trying to either lose or gain weight, I probably end up eating about four pounds of meat a day. So, you know, for me, you know, I'm 6'5", 250 pounds. That's pretty much right at maintenance, so typically two meals a day. So I had uh, about two, a little over two pounds for breakfast and the same for an early dinner. So that's what I do pretty much most days. And I want to dive into that and why you do that, because I think there's a lot of people really fascinated right now with the carnivore diet. In some ways, uh, and in subsectors, it's become a fad. I know that's not what it is to you, and I know that's not at all what your what your goals are in terms of, of leading this community, um, I want to direct people to meetrx.com, meetrx.com, and that's M-E-A-T-R-X. That's your website. Um, there's a ton of resources on there, and of course, there's The Carnivore Diet, which you wrote. Um, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of podcast episodes you have linked up there as well, and several books and guides that you've written. Um, let me start with this, because, you know, Nutrition right now, we've just we're coming through this pandemic. We're still in the midst of this pandemic. And everything about how we've handled this pandemic from my perspective has been wrong. There hasn't even been the slightest conversation about getting people's bodies healthy to be able to fight off this virus, let alone, you know, what we're doing to businesses. So not to get political or anything, but I mean, you live in the nutrition realm and you got to be banging your head on the wall when you see these supposed experts, not even talking about how to get our bodies healthy and our immune system strong. It is a little, well, it's not more than a little frustrating. It's a lot frustrating. You know, I think many people in the healthcare industry, you know, I, and I worked as an active surgeon for two decades in, in, you know, in the traditional medical sense. And it's very frustrating to get people to change health habits. I mean, we've seen that time and time again. I think part of that is it's just that the advice we've been giving has been ineffective, whether it's right or wrong, it's not working. People don't adopt it. And so it's very challenging to do that. Um, you know, to the, in the defense of the people that have been managing this pandemic, I mean, this has been a very unexpected, unknown thing. There's a lot of things that we don't know. And, you know, I would argue that many people are doing it with the best intentions in mind, but they have not, for whatever reason, executed it properly and not, they failed to, you know, to look at the data as it emerges and, and adjust appropriately. And so I, you know, like I said, if I were the King, I would have handled things differently, but you know, it's always easier to be at the backseat driver you know, the people that are, that are on stage are the ones that have to make make things happen. So it's easy to kind of look at it from a distance. But yeah, I mean, I, I share your your frustration with that. I think that this would have been a very good time to say, hey, let's maybe take this time to try to shore up your metabolic health. Let's lose that, you know, that extra 20 pounds of flab you got on there. Instead, the message was stay home. Um, you know, I mean, there were literally mainstream you know, news outlets telling people don't go on a diet now. It's too stressful. Just eat your normal junk food. Right. In fact, just just enjoy, enjoy and indulge in the junk food because it's stressful. And I think that was clearly the wrong message. And we've seen very little, you know, sort of coordinated response towards 
um, trying to fix our own health, the health of the host. You know, there's a viral, there's a viral particle, and then there's a host. And right. if the host is sick, it's a lot easier for the virus to to do to wreak havoc. And if the host is not already chronically sick, then it's a lot harder. And we see that with every every single infectious disease out there. This is not sort of new. I mean, it's you know, with rare exceptions, the Spanish flu disproportionately struck the young, but in general, old people, frail people, metabolically uh, damaged people are going to suffer disproportionately. And, and that, that is something that you, you can fix. Even older people, you can get them in better health. I mean, it's not like, you know, there's nothing you could do just because you're older. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the part that, that really, that I've been chomping at the bit about is that there, there's something you and I can do every single day to make our health better. I mean, there's, there's a set of decisions I'm going to make today, eat this or that. You know what I mean? And that set of decisions is going to determine maybe how I feel seven or eight days from now, you know, because of the cumulative effect of eating better, being smarter, working out, exercising, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and, and I want to make sure people understand as well, Dr. Sean Baker, you're actually a medical doctor. You're not um, not doctor as in Ph.D., but doctor as in a medical doctor, correct? What, what type of medical doctor? Yeah, so my specialty was orthopedic surgery, so I replaced knees, hips. You know, I did a lot of... Uh, combat trauma surgery when I was deployed, you know, in the military in Afghanistan and went into private practice and had a, had a fairly, you know, successful career as an orthopedic surgeon. You know, I've, uh, uh, you know, I've treated all kinds of, uh, illnesses and seen all kinds of diseases as they manifest manifest in, uh, you know, trauma or orthopedic disease. And, you know, we see, we see the effects of diabetes in orthopedics. We see the effects of, you know, uh, smoking in, in orthopedics. We see the effects of, you know, uh, metabolic syndrome and all, all the other things, autoimmune disease, whatever, whatever you see, we see it there as well. Um, by the way, thank you for your service. You were, you were a medic deployed. Where did, where were you deployed? I was deployed to a place called Bagram, Afghanistan, which was kind of the main trauma center in the Af- Afghanistan war theater. And so we took care of pretty much everything that occurred in that country. So we were just wow. inundated with this, you know, kind of horrific trauma every, every single day. It was kind of a, kind of a very, uh, Stressful environment. You had to, you had to have seen some uh, pretty incredible things during that period of time. Uh, I did. I saw just about every way that a human can be injured without and still live that, that I think is possible. Yeah. One of our last guests is my friend Matt Bradford. He's a U.S. Marine. He was actually injured in um, Iraq. He uh, took an IED and lost both legs and both eyes. Um, and he has a, a group now called no legs, no vision, no problem. And he is the most victorious person I've ever met in my life. And every time I'm around him, I'm just thankful that he's my friend. Um, but, uh, then I've also lost friends in these wars and it's, it's, it's a situation where, um, I, I can't imagine being in your shoes where you're trying to save as many lives as you can. And they come in with these massive traumatic injuries. I mean, that's got to also take a toll on you as well. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, it, I was very fortunate that I had a very good partner with me. You know, it was the two of us, two different surgeons, and we kind of just kind of kept each other in the game, you know, using, you know, we were we were pretty good about, like I said, even though it was stressful, we made sure we, you know, we ate properly, we exercised, and I think that, that certainly helps with that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you're a competitive athlete. Um, w- you compete in, is it rowing? Is that, and, and also heavy lifting, um uh, do you do like what, what all kinds of uh, sports are you competitive in? Well, I mean, I've had a long career. I mean, I played, you know, basically very high level rugby when I was younger playing in the, in the you know, New Zealand and the, uh, uh, you know, kind of the professional leagues back 
very early on in the early 1990s, and I went on to compete uh, in powerlifting, where I set a number of American and national state records. And the deadlift, primarily, I was up to uh, you know 772 pound deadlift as a drug free, lifetime drug free lifter. I went on to uh, do some competitive uh, Highland Games, where you kind of wear a kilt and throw heavy objects, and I won the world championships in that as a masters athlete. Um, I went on to I did track and field. I ended up throwing a number of uh, a number of different events, all American, you know, Masters All American, and then uh, switched into rowing a few years ago. And then I ended up setting uh, six American records, three world records, and winning a world championship in that. So I've been yeah, I've been a competitive athlete my kind of my whole adult life. And still, I'm very much uh, you know still very much competitive and still look to compete. So to a lot of people listening to this podcast right now, what we're about to talk about is kind of shocking, to be honest. The fact that as a competitive athlete, as a medical doctor, you only eat meat. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly a little bit unusual. I would, If you would have asked me the same thing four, five, six years ago, I would have thought that was very odd and shocking and perhaps not very wise. But <laughs> as I've come to really, really sort of understand it better and experience it, I realize that uh, it's actually not that unusual in the context of human beings as, as we kind of populated the earth throughout all of our time on earth. And, uh, ultimately, you know, I'm not in this for any sort of reason other than I wanted to have the best health that I could have. And this is what ends up working for me. And, you know, like I said, I'm not necessarily saying it's optimal and ideal for every person on the planet, but there are a lot of people that have come to this now, uh, and have found the same thing. So it's very, you know, I think it's very, Curious, very least curious, and, and you know the fact that people aren't really sort of intrigued by this. Some are, and we're you know there's been some research that's been sort of undertaken you know on, on this diet now, and I am you know in the middle of kind of sponsoring some as well, and so uh, yeah, it's it's it, it goes against the kind of the traditional nutritional advice that we hear day in and day out. You know we constantly hear that we should drift toward the plant based diet, and uh, I think that is at best. Um, you know, misguided and, and maybe at worst, there's maybe some ulterior motives behind that, primarily financial. But right. uh, I think that, uh, you know, humans are very well adapted to eat a, you know, pretty much a fairly carnivorous diet, you know, whether that's required or what's, you know, whether that's optimal for everyone is to, is debatable, but it certainly seems to work very well for many people. I know the first question that a lot of people are, are asking right now is, how's your cholesterol? I get that question all the time when I talk about, I'm not 100% carnivore, but I do eat, I'm more towards the meat-centered side of the paleo diet than the plant-centered side of the paleo diet. And I've found that I feel better the more I lean towards the meat-centered side. And people are constantly, because I'll show off my, you know, my red meat on on social media and people are like, well, how's your cholesterol? You know, so so how is your cholesterol when that is all you eat is meat? Well, and, you know, somebody asked me that the other day as I, you know, posted my, my birthday picture the other day as I turned 54. And, uh, uh, you know, how's my cholesterol doing? I said, what's, what's my cholesterol doing? I said, I said, it's doing its job. And I think that's really <laughs> the wrong question. You know, I think that's really the right. wrong question because we have to understand cholesterol in context. First of all, cholesterol is not unilaterally bad for us. It's, you know, we have cholesterol in every cell in our body. Cholesterol is incredibly important to human function, healthy human function, and we need it for you know, to make up all of our cell membranes, we need it uh, as a precursor to many of our hormones, particularly our sex hormones, vitamin D, and so on and so forth. So cholesterol, it, it by itself is 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 okay. Now the question is, how much of it 
And more importantly, what kind are we talking about? I'm not just talking about HDL, the so-called good cholesterol, and LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol, but how do we sort of talk about, even within that LDL fragment, what are the, what are the important parts? There's, been, there's, there's a lot of new data coming out that shows that it's not just LDL by itself. It's what type of LDL, what, part, what portion of the LDL, what is the characterization of that LDL? Is that LDL oxidized? Is that LDI? LDL glycated, you know, has it been exposed to too much glucose? Has it been exposed to too much oxidation? Is it then inherently damaging? And so I think we're finding out that this is a very context-dependent question. Um, what I see on this diet is some people will see their LDL cholesterol drop. Some people will see it largely be unchanged, and some people will see it be elevated. So the question is, what about those people in which is elevated? I think that's still a unknown uh, in that cohort, because what we're seeing is even in these people with relatively high LDL cholesterol, we're seeing they have perfect looking blood vessels when you actually image the blood vessels, whether it be something through something called a coronary artery calcium scan, which by the way, I had a few years into this and it was a perfect zero, which means I had no plaque whatsoever in my heart, which is really at the end of the day, what we want to know. We don't, we don't really necessarily want to know what our cholesterol is. We want to know is what is the health of our arteries? That's the true question we're getting at. And, you know, just from I mean, I, when I went in to have that test, I almost knew it was going to be zero just because how I was functioning otherwise. I mean, I could tell as an athlete, I was able to perform at a world-class, in fact, a world record-breaking level in a sport that's very highly demanding on the cardiorespiratory system. And so you don't really break world records typically with a damaged heart or circulatory system. And, you know, there's some other things that I would point to that would make me indicate that. So, I mean, the cholesterol question is i mean it's just really the wrong question it's not you know you could say whatever number it is but is that truly a problem for you versus someone else now the problem we have in society is most people have an ldl that's elevated in the context of poor glycemic control chronic inflammation a lot of visceral fat a lot of just general fat and in general they generally sedentary they generally have possibly elevated blood pressure in that situation you know you've got this likelihood that cholesterol is already damaged and therefore a problem it's both high and damaged and i think that becomes more of an issue um so it's it's it's, it's not such a straightforward black and white question when you were talking about that um because i've listened to a lot of podcasts on cholesterol and i don't profess to understand it other than to basically have a sense of the concept and one of the things that i was thinking about while you were talking about this was it it also seems to depend upon when you said, in other words, when you said, how's your cholesterol? My cholesterol is doing its job. It also depends on the kind of work you give it to do, right? In other words, what you eat and how you live your life is going to be the, the type of work that you give cholesterol to do. If you are, if you have high cholesterol, because cholesterol, my understanding is it basically cleans our blood system, right? I mean, it works to clean crap out of there. And when you get plaque is when you put bad crap in and it, it gets stuck because it's trying to do its best and it can't keep up that heavy workload. So is that is that maybe more of a simpleton's explanation of how it might work in the sense that giving your cholesterol bad work to do maybe leads it to do a bad job, but giving it good work to do, giving it good bricks to build with, um, maybe means that the actual number is not so important. Well, I, th I think the concepts, the concept of context is, is is the key here. You know, and like I said, it's depending on where, what what context that, that cholesterol is being exposed to. Um, you know, what it's doing. You know, we we know, like for instance, 
we can look at epidemiologic studies, and I'm not a fan of epidemiologic studies just because they're so limited on what they can show. But but many people will use these epidemiologic studies to say that you know cholesterol is associated with and associated with does not mean causes right. by any stretch of the imagination, but associated with you know increasing heart cardiovascular disease and so on and so forth. Whereas you can point to equally, you can point to studies showing that higher cholesterol levels, particularly later in life, is associated with longer life, less disease, less cancer, less uh, infectious disease, less uh, uh, neurodegenerative disease, less dementia, so on and so forth. And we know that, like I said, cholesterol is has a crucial role in our immune system. And so when we're fighting um, infections, cholesterol is important. One of the things is we saw, you know, this is a study that didn't get much play, but we did see a relationship between people that were uh, coming down with COVID-19 and being symptomatic and actually having bad outcomes tended to have bad low cholesterol readings. Now, the, the sort of the naysayers will say, well, that's, that is kind of reverse causality and the fact that getting an infection will chew up all your cholesterol mm-hmm. and you'll end up with low cholesterol. But if you're already starting low, what happens when you don't have it much left? Right. You, know, you don't have that much defense. So it's like having enough reserve to right. uh, be able to deal with these things. That's a, that's an interesting point. I think too, um, it kind of surrounding all of this, when we look at you know, when you talk about context and what we put into our bodies, I just, I think that th- let me go back and kind of, for people that don't know, when you say, I don't like epidemiological studies, what epidemiological studies are is as opposed to say like a, a blind controlled study an epidemiological epidemiologic, I can't say it. One of those types of studies is where they basically call you up and say, what do you remember about the last five years that you ate? Right. You know, and it's like, well, that doesn't really tell me that much because one, you could have you could have a bias towards not really wanting to admit what you actually ate. You could have a bias towards not remembering exactly what you ate and what you said. Most importantly, if you're going in and saying, "Let's look at all the people that eat meat," because this is what happened in Europe with these studies that said meat causes cancer. They lumped in multiple types of meat, which included heavily processed meat. Um, you know that that's not the same as eating a steak. It's not the same as eating a grass-fed steak, but they lumped it in. And then you have these other elements where people who tend to eat more meat overall tend to also have those bad habits. And if we don't control and separate out and control for those bad habits, you have absolutely no idea what it means when you say there's a correlation between meat and cancer if you're not also including that the people who tend to eat meat tend to also smoke, tend to also drink excuse me, tend to also drink, tend to also do these other things. That's what epidemiology, see, I can't say it. That's what epidemiological studies don't account for, which leaves people with a false impression of what not, you know, the knowledge that's supposedly gained from them. Yeah, that, that, you know, that's called the healthy user bias. You know, when we take these people, we lump them into one category and we don't fully account for all the other habits. But even beyond that, what, what's becoming more and more increasingly clear is I think there's an interaction between the way our gut, the health of our gut. So if we have a dysbiotic gut or a gut that's populated with wrong sort of bacteria or we have damage to our gut to where we have what's called a leaky gut, in that situation, meat in that situation might even be somewhat detrimental because you're, hmm. you, have, you have bacteria that are, that are acting upon these compounds in meat that are eliciting these potentially toxic compounds. Now, the problem is, why are we having these damaged guts? And I think that has to do with the industrial diet we've been fed over the last you know, 50 to 100 years where we're yeah. having all this process, you know, processed refined grains. We've got high amounts of sweeteners. We've got uh, you know, these seed oils, these foods that we never would have been exposed to. So we think we have a 
you know, an unbalanced, you know, gut that's not working well. And so now we have this natural food that we've been eating for, you know, three million years as a, as a human species. You know, if we go back to Homo habilis uh, and then, you know, on to Homo erectus and Homo sapien, you know, 200, 300,000 years ago, we've been eating meat continuously. And that's why I think it's interesting when we have this population of myself and the, and the tens of thousands of people that have now followed me on this diet and they almost with rare exception, see their health improve. In many cases, improve dramatically. In many cases, come off all medications. In many cases, completely get rid of disease by just switching to a meat-only diet, which I think is extremely powerful. I mean, that's but that in my view, that's pretty powerful evidence. You have one of the things I love about you is that you don't shy away from taking it to. Um the whole vegan thing that's growing right now. And, and, and I don't mean that in a mean way. You're not mean to people for the sake of being mean to people. Um, but you don't mind taking it to these people that preach veganism as a religion. And there's a, you know, it's like, I know people that have gone vegetarian or vegan and they do so for either ethical reasons or what they, you know, their health reasons or whatever. I respect that. I really do. But there's also an element within veganism that is militant and angry and wants to control the way the rest of us eat. And you have absolutely no qualms about going after that faction of veganism. Yeah, I mean, I am fully supportive for an adult to choose to eat however the heck they want to eat. If you want to be a vegan, you want to be breatharian. If you want to eat just potatoes, if you just want to eat steaks, I don't really care. We all should be given that choice to do what works best for us for whatever outcome we choose. Now, I tend to choose having a healthy life and feeling good as a part of my tradition tradition is why I eat the way I eat. I'm not into it to say the tomatoes or <laughs> anything like that. But I, you know, I think that there is a lot of misinformation. You know, we've got people that are painting people that eat meat like they've been doing since people have existed as now as murderers and rapists and horrible, awful people. And they're killing the planet, you know, because they're eating in a way that they're designed to eat. It's like yelling at, you know, it's like yelling at zebras for eating grass. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, this is what you do. This is what they've always done. And so I think when we have people out there saying that your biological and evolutionary existence is in conflict with, you know, ethics is just, you know, I think it's bizarre. I think it's crazy. Right. And there is a lot of cherry pick, picking and, and misinformation. And there is no there is almost no hiding the amount of false propaganda that's out there. And so I'm happy to point that out. And, you know, sometimes I'll do it in a humorous way. Sometimes I'll poke fun at it. And, uh, you know, just because social media is what it is, you have to be somewhat entertaining to get anyone to sort of pay attention. You right. Know? You've got to, you've got to, you've got to attract that emotional side of it, whether it's your humor or some other emotion before people will actually kind of take a look. And so all you do is put out dry studies, study after study, you don't really get much, unfortunately, you don't get much in the way of uh, traction that way. So it's, uh, that's just the way the game's played. And I think if you don't realize that, you're, you're never going to make any progress. Do, do you get an enormous amount of pushback? Well, I mean, certainly I've had my detractors and, you know, I mean, I've got a, you know, <laughs> a plenty of people that, that don't like my message, but it's interesting. You know, I, I usually, many of those people, because it, it always, it always sort of kind of baffles me a little bit why anyone who is professing veganism or really is sort of indoctrinated is there on sort of my social media trying to convince me or the people that follow me that, that their way is right because most of them or many of them already have done it and found out that it's wrong or have no intention of doing that. So I think they're kind of wasting their time. But because they spend time looking at my pages 
and seeing these show success story after success story after success story or study after study after study after study or demonstrating through my own, you know, sort of physical performance, they eventually change their mind. And I'll hear, you know, hey, I used to hate you two years ago, but now I'm totally on board with what you say. And so I find it kind of just amusing. Yeah. Why are plants bad for us? Well, I, I don't want to say that plants are bad for us. I want to say that, um, well, I mean, well, in general, like I'm sitting in my backyard, I'm, I'm surrounded by trees and, you know, plants. If I went there and ate any one of these, I would be very sick. I'd be tremendously sick. Most plants on the planet, we can't eat. That's clear. Every single animal on the planet, we can eat probably with rare exception. You know, there's like a, you know, a puffer fish, which you have to clean out of thing. But in general, you can eat pretty much any animal on the planet or at least some portion of that animal. So animals are safe to eat. Plants, by and large, are not due to chemicals and toxins that they produce. Now, we as human beings have been eating plant foods for a long time, as long as we've been humans as well. Many of that, much of that's been maybe fruit, maybe a few other things we've figured out what we can eat. But most of the, the plant foods we eat today were either highly, highly cultivated to bear you know, a certain amount of, to, to show certain properties that aren't natural to the plant itself. And even still, many of those plants, like things we eat routinely, like I'll point to the cashew, I'll point to cassava, I'll point to uh, like navy beans, all of those things, if not processed extremely, you know, the, the correct way will be, will actually kill you in very limited quantities. People that die of cassava, people can die from cashews, people can die from, uh, uh, you know, I think a handful of like 10, 10 navy beans eaten raw will kill a person. So, you know, the inside of, you know, seeds in, a, in an apple filled with cyanide, so peach pit, same thing, cyanide. So we have all these compounds in plants that are irritating. At the very least, they're irritating to us and, and perhaps our guts to, to some degree. You know, some people tolerate it fine and there's no problem. They thrive and they can live a long, healthy life eating them. Many people find, and I think, again, I think we have this situation where we've got this gut biome or dysbiotic gut or dysfunctioning gut that has occurred to the modern diet. And so even maybe some of the plants that we used to be able to tolerate better are now problematic for us. Right. And so I think in general, people just aren't tolerating a natural human diet anymore because our guts have been wrecked by the industrial sludge we kind of shove down our throats day in and day out. So I don't think carbohydrates are bad necessarily. I mean, we produce glucose. Um, you know, it's part of what we use is our fuel source. It's just that, you know, when the glucose comes with a bunch of oxalates, as in, say, spinach, and certain amounts of that can be problematic for people. And so I think people find that, you know, if you are eating a small amount of toxic material in, in association with your, you know, with your, with your starch or your, or your sugar source, maybe that small amount is not a problem. Maybe over time it builds up. It would, it'd be like if I were to eat, if I were to constantly eat meat that was contaminated, I mean, I would still be getting the nutrition from the meat, but I would also be getting some contamination. And right. over time, I'd reach a threshold where that contamination would be a problem for me. So I think it's it's more not that plants are inherently evil, uh, but I think many people, in fact, probably a significant majority of people, and many that don't know that, probably would do better to, to remove some of those foods from their diet, even though they are, quote unquote, healthy vegetables. They may not be for you. Is that why I've heard some people in the carnivore sphere, um, namely Dr. Paul Saladino, who's been on this podcast as well, uh, who who eats mostly meat, um, but you know will eat in season some fruits, like some berries and things like that. And the way he explained it to me was, you know, the fruit is not the core of the plant, so the defensive mechanisms outside of the seeds, like you said, 
are not as strong in the fruit itself as they are in, say, the stalk or the, the root or whatever else. So is that kind of why maybe, you know, there's quite a few carnivores that do dabble in some fruits and stuff from time to time, uh, at least in season, because humans would have come across those ancestrally, probably partaken of those and enjoyed those. Well, yeah, it certainly depends on where you would have been. You know, if you live in the tropics, you'd have year-round access to potentially some sort of plant, you know, edible plants, you would assume. Uh, you got to remember, most of the time, humans were humans, you know, whether it's, again, going back 3 million years or 300,000 at the beginning of Homo sapien. We were in colder climates during Ice Age times throughout most of where we expanded to. Um, I think that it would there, there are still many, many fruits out there. You know, we all know about poison berries, right? There's plenty of quote-unquote poisonous berries. So just because it's a fruit doesn't mean it's appropriate for humans. Right. You know, there's some animals specifically can eat certain berries where others can't. We've kind of found the ones that we can, we can eat. You know, many of the fruits, again, have been hybridized and changed in, in their nature to where they express a lot more sugar and a pleasant taste. Um, there are still toxins in fruit, whether it's in the seed, whether it's in the skin. You know, the outside is typically... Perhaps maybe, you know, like the skins tend to contain a little higher concentration of, of uh, uh, toxins, you know, depending on how it's where it is in its ripening season. You know, you can eat something that's not quite ripe and it's very bitter and awful and, and probably makes you sick. Or if it's just at that right time, right degree of ripeness, you know, that you can get that that extra sugar. And, and, and correctly, we are the reason, you know, we have the symbiotic relationship with plants is. They expect us to help them to propagate their seeds by ingesting and then later defecating out these seeds, uh, you know, hopefully with nutrition, you know, with some nitrogen fertilizer with it, you know, in a certain area so they can grow. So, right. you know, that, that's, you know, of the foods I would say you would want to include back in a diet if you didn't want to remain on a strictly meat-based diet. Fruit, fruit potentially would be one of them for sure. Um, and again, I've, I've never been dogmatic about saying you should only eat meat and, and that's it for the rest of your life. I do so myself just because I feel best that way. I mean, there's right. no other reason other than the way I feel and perform. But right. I mean, to say that someone else can't eat a blueberry is, is you know, in my view, kind of silly. What would happen to you right now if you ate a salad? Well, I wouldn't like it. First of all, I, hate, <laughs> I, hated, yeah, I never liked vegetables. I mean, I, you know, I, never, I never enjoyed salads. I mean, I used to eat them, you know, kind of feeling like, I'm doing some good for my body and therefore I'm going to eat this. But I mean, in truth be told, unless it was smothered with a lot of fat, you know, bacon and eggs and fruit and nuts <laughs> right. in there. I mean, I didn't enjoy the leaf part of the salad. There's right. no, you know, I, I, you know, like I said, I, I can't see how people can sit there and eat like raw broccoli or raw cauliflower. That was to me, like I would rather eat sawdust. I mean, it was, it, right. it, it was kind of a similar experience for me. So, I mean, what would happen to me? My guts would hurt. I mean, I would probably get gas gassy and, you know, my, my stomach would hurt for a couple of days, and I'd probably have some GI diarrhea or something like that for a few days, yeah. most likely. So I, I mean, I've got no desire to eat that. And even my kids, I mean, my kids aren't on a strict carnivore diet, but they eat a hell of a lot of meat. They eat meat pretty much every day, almost every meal. And they'll uh, they'll ask for, you know, a piece of fruit here and there, and, and I'm happy to give it to them. They never ask for vegetables, and I never force it on them. So, wow. I mean, it's it works pretty well. The kids are pretty happy. At the same time, they don't get a bunch of sugar and crap. So it's kind of a, yeah. you know, it's yeah. kind of a, you know, they, they win some, they lose some in that regard. I, I've heard some vegans say things like, well, you know, uh, a cow's a pretty big animal and it's pretty strong. You know, an elephant's a big, strong animal. How did it get that way? Not eating meat. And, 
you just want to like pull your hair out because you're like because they have an entirely different digestive system than human beings. <laughs> they got well, multiple I mean, stomachs. I, it's it's different, you know. Well, I mean, I point out that the biggest, strongest planet animal on the planet is is a, is a carnivore. It's a blue whale. I mean, blue whales live. It's a good point. On a hundred percent carnivore diet, and they don't even have pointy claws and sharp teeth. All right. They do is they've got a ballot, and so they all they do is. Well, you know, they, they filter out, filter in, uh, you know, basically krill all day long. Scoop you know, it millions up. Millions and millions of krill a day. Yeah. And it's all carnivore. And they're the biggest, by far, strongest animal on the planet. So that's a that's a really stupid analogy. And, you know, the other thing is, you know, like a gorilla. I mean, you know, a gorilla is not much bigger than what I am. I mean, I'm 250 pounds. A, a mountain gorilla is maybe 300. And they eat 50 pounds of food a day. And I eat, you know, I eat four. Right. So, that's I a great mean, point. You know, yeah. and, and, and plus they have to eat their own feces. Yeah, recycle vitamin B twelve. So I mean, <laughs> if you want to make that argument, go eat, go eat fifty pounds. So, of, of, of so wait a minute. When you go to the zoo crap. and the monkey or a baboon or a, or a, a gorilla is throwing its poo at you, it's really a gift. It's not mean. It's like here, right, have some sure. vitamin B twelve. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I say they, they probably saw a vegan in the crowd and said, "Hey man, you you vitamin B twelve fish, have some of this." I love it. So I know people are interested in specifically what you eat and how you eat it. So is it just red meat? Do you eat pork? Do you eat fish? Do you eat chicken? Or is it just red meat? Well, to be fair, I mean, right now it's, you know, it's World Carnivore Month. It's something that I kind of started four years ago. This is our fourth year. And so I am, during this month, I'm on 100% red meat. So it's going to be nothing but basically meat, salt, and water for me this month. And I'm fine with that. And I did that pretty consistently i mean i've gone a year, over a year like that I've, you know sometimes i'll throw some eggs in there um sometimes i'll throw in i'll eat fish from time to time i'll eat shrimp i'll eat a little bit of pork often in the form of bacon mm. uh chicken i'll eat gosh very very rarely i mean it's extremely rare i'll have chicken just because it's, it, it's just lost its appeal to me right it just doesn't do it for me from a from a satiation standpoint so i rarely unless it's the only thing that's available i'll really is that because it's, it's so lean? It just doesn't have the fat you need. The ratio. Well, that's 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 part of it. Yeah, that is another important point. You know, when you're on a when you're on a diet that doesn't have any significant source of carbohydrates, you need an energy source, and generally, the best way to do that is to get it through fat. Right. And I think that is you know that is what in fact that's what drove human brain evolution, and a lot of our evolutionary gains were made by the the, the ability to acquire a large amounts of animal fat, and this came with uh, you know probably early scavenging, you know breaking into the marrow. And the skulls of, of, of you know scavenged animals that were left behind behind by other bigger predators, and then as Homo erectus learned how to hunt and became a proficient hunter, uh, you know they were the most successful human species to ever walk the earth, being around for uh, something like one and a half million years, you know way longer, five times as long as we've been on the planet. So they figured out how to kill these big animals, and, and they did it with spears. And they because of that, because of that that easy ability to acquire highly highly calorically dense nutrient-dense fats, animal fats, and these big animals, they grew their brain. And, then, and, and they, you know, they did that uh, over a period of several, you know, 100,000 years going from a, you know, 900cc brain to up to maybe a 1,200cc brain. And then we continue that as we evolve further, you know, into the rest of the homo species. And uh, peaking with the Neanderthal had the largest brain of all humans, interestingly. Most people don't realize that, but they actually had a 17 100 cc brain and, and the humans peaked around 1500 cc's and unfortunately we've lost brain size uh, by about 200 cc's uh, with the kind of the loss of the megafaunal animals in our transition to an agricultural based uh, nutrition strategy that's interesting yeah, so that, that we as, as we've eaten less meat 
Because I know that, uh, and Mark Sisson talks about this a lot, about how when agriculture came on the scene, that's when we started to see things like heart disease, arthritis, um, diabetes, these sort of chronic illnesses that almost everyone universally faces today. Uh, can can almost directly be tied back to when agriculture came on the scene, and 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 maybe not even as nearly as bad as it is today at the time when that first happened. But now, in the explosion of sugar and highly processed foods, has coincided with an explosion of those those um, uh, those conditions. Yeah, I think that's 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 pretty clear. I mean, you can look. You know, I think any anthropologist that's familiar with uh, looking at human fossils uh, between comparing, you know, the pre-agricultural populations and the post-agricultural populations sees a huge difference. They can point them out almost immediately, and they, what they can look at is the quality of the dentition or the teeth. Uh, they can look at the bone quality. They look at the size, the thickness of the skull. We were just stronger, more robust, taller people with bigger brains, you know, 100,000 years ago, and we lost a lot of that again with the loss of our food supply, the megafaunal animals, the mega herbivores, and as we, you know, we kind of transitioned to, to agriculture, and then we had to deal with crop failures, you know, the feast and famine stuff started to come in place. We became nutritionally. It allowed us to grow as a population. You know, I mean, it, it supported larger populations and civilization, but it, what, it, what it did came at a huge cost to the actual individual or yeah. individual health. Yeah, I've seen a lot of like the, the demonization of fat and particularly animal fat um, and then the onslaught of you know, fake fat, I call it, vegetable oils and things like that that we cook with that are supposed to be healthy. I want to direct people to your success stories page at meetrx.com because if you look at these pictures of these people before and after, to come to the conclusion that what they have done is somehow unhealthy would be the craziest thing you can ever come up with. I mean, their skin looks better, their eyes look brighter, their their hair looks better. Their bodies look better. It's it's unbelievable the change that happens to these people. Yeah, it is, and I and I, I you know I, I every day I get these you know incredible life transformations. I mean, I just posted two of them today. I mean, I, every single day I get someone telling me my life has changed dramatically for the better. And, and you know, you name the the, the 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 metric they use, it's all getting better. And it, it is kind of ludicrous to think that these people are somehow harming themselves when in fact uh, they're doing it just the exact opposite they're finally actually living in life instead of just being kind of relegated to the sidelines due to due to chronic illness or obesity so it's it's just a uh, you know it, it, it takes someone with just willful you know ignorance i guess to to not see that yeah for sure um when you eat meat do you season it at all uh, sometimes i mean generally i most of the time it's just some salt uh if you know if i'm cooking for like the rest of my family, they'll, they'll, they like something a little less. I'll throw some pepper garlic on there. Sometimes I'll use some of these pre-made rubs. I get a lot of companies that send me spices and seasonings and various things to try out. So sometimes I'll try those out. But I think, you know, generally for me, I'm pretty easy with that. I'm pretty happy with just some salt. Uh, but uh, I'm not opposed to people using those seasonings. There's people that, you know, and I, there are some people like people with sort of, sort of severe autoimmune diseases and, and really – messed up guts people that say like Crohn's disease where those seasonings may sort of really be problematic and they have to limit those things but I think for the for the average person if you look at it this way that you know you kind of keep meat as the sort of the main sustenance of your life it's it's your nutrition and then everything else is maybe an enhancement maybe to make it taste a little better you know maybe for some variety of people throw some onions on their steak or some mushrooms or things like that I don't really 
it doesn't bother me that you do that. I mean, I just think you just need to be objective as to is it causing problems for right. it or negative? Is, is it is it a net benefit if it's if it's if the if the negative is so minimal and it and it enhances your experience to where you enjoy what you eat, then by all means go ahead. I mean, this right. is a thing you got to make it sustainable. And I think I, I think there's one there's a couple of rules that I've found that, that, that invariably uh, tend to hold up is that you know no one is successful on a diet if they don't like the food right. or they're hungry all the time. So if you if you if you satisfy those criteria where you enjoy the food, you're not always hungry, you're going to have a much better chance of being able to maintain it. Well, and with this diet, you don't have to worry about portion size. You eat till you're not hungry anymore, right? I mean, you just when I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm not hungry, I don't eat. Yeah, I mean that that generally works for most people. I mean, there's people that that, that it doesn't work as well for, but for the most part, you know, because meat is very satiating. Uh, it's a highly bioavailable, nutrient-dense food. It is, uh, I think, very delicious, particularly if you know how to cook. Um, but, you know, <laughs> not everybody does anymore, unfortunately. But, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty easy skill to pick up. Um, and it does tend to re- regulate your appetite. It tends to be higher in protein, which most people that understand nutrition would argue that's a good thing. And there's some people that are, that are sort of demonizing protein, I think, very, very unfoundedly so. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it does tend to regulate your appetite. And, you know, I look at it like every, every single wild on the animal on the planet does not need to worry about portion control. They don't need someone sitting there telling them, Hey, you've had enough to eat right. you naughty lion. Don't eat any more <laughs> of that zebra. You know, I mean, we, we don't, we don't, we don't need to do that with any other species but our own. And I think it's because, um, you know, we just eating or we're not, we're just not eating a species appropriate diet. Right. And that's yeah. why we have a problem. Yeah. I mean, sugar is so tasty that it drives us to eat when we don't need to. Um, and, and that's the core of, I think, a lot of our dietary problems in society. Certainly, yeah. I mean, certainly the ultra-processed foods and the sugar-rich foods are very easy to overeat. And, I, you know, I, to be fair, I mean, you could get fat eating a meat-based diet if you overate that. But, I mean, it's just it's, it's challenging to do. Right. So I, I won't say it's not doable, uh, but it is tough because one of the biggest problems – complaint i get from people doing this is they want to put on a lot of weight and size and they struggle to eat enough and i tell them you gotta I mean, you gotta work it you gotta suck it up and you gotta eat past the point of satiety you've got to you basically gotta walk around full and miserable all the time <laughs> if you want to eat and if you're willing to do that yeah you can gain weight and, you know if you're not working out you can gain fat but if you're you know if you're not then uh it's harder to do that and particularly for men i mean women have a little i mean particularly postmenopausal women have a, a little bit different thing going on there and there's some additional things but for the most part, the diet is unique in that it eliminates cravings because, you know, if you're trying to give up, say, sugar or, or these things, and I'm not necessarily saying everybody needs to, but if you are trying to do that, it's really hard to do that. It's like when you're eating it periodically, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things trying to tell an alcoholic where you're going to quit drinking, but you're going to have a, you're going to have one drink a night. It just doesn't work, right. you know, so you just have to kind of go through kind of a period of abstinence and, and, and it's actually easier than you think when, when, when you get into it. Yeah. I've, I've heard also people that I've talked to, um, have said that when you eat only meat, the cravings go away and really that's all you crave. Uh, so it's not hard once you've done it for a while. Um, but what should people be prepared for if they decide to make this switch for the first few weeks? Yeah, so I mean, first of all, I like I said, I like that I'd refer people to Meet Our because we have this huge FAQ and I won't be able to answer them all right yeah, now. Yeah. But I think some of the common things, again, we talked about a little bit, people tend to undereat and therefore they feel like they're hungry and they still have cravings. So I tell people in the beginning, just eat enough and keep eating to make it to where, you know, when people ask me how much should I eat, 
eat enough so you don't want a cupcake or whatever you're right. you know fill in the fill in the blank or whatever your food is uh that might mean that you're eating a hell of a lot of food initially mm-hmm. and then i think that's the case i think you should be prepared to, to to be decadent enjoy it you know put the put the bacon and eggs and the, throw the piece of bacon on the burger and put a little piece of cheese on there um you're going to notice a reduction in your bowel frequency a lot of people think it's constipation what's really going on is you are not wasting material anymore remember meat is extremely well absorbed and bioavailable it doesn't sit there and rot in your colon like the vegan knuckle this is another one that vegan propaganda people will tell you that's not at all what goes on we unequivocally no that's not the case what happens is meat is just so well absorbed by our small intestine that you make very little waste product and so at the end of the day you may notice hey i didn't have a bowel movement today or, or you may go several days right. that doesn't necessarily mean you're constipated it just means you're not wasting you're, there's nothing to, you're not wasting anything anymore right. whereas you know typically when you're eating this fiber-rich plant-heavy diet all that just constantly just running through you. You're like a you're, you're like a rhinoceros, constantly <laughs> crapping, and you're you know you're scraping all the cells off of your cell lining. And so when you're eating a meat-based diet, you don't have that irritation. You don't have that cells being sloughed off to the degree. You don't have the tremendous amount of fiber that's just being that we can't digest pushing through our body. Yeah. So you know you just don't waste as much. Um, I've heard though that when people switch to it completely, that the first couple of weeks they might have pretty bad diarrhea. Yeah, some people do do that, and that's most of the time it has to do with fat malabsorption. And so if you are in a situation where you've been on this sort of standard diet where you're avoiding fat like most so many of us do, um, you're not as adept at reabsorbing fat. So that's something that takes a while to transition. And so in that case, I tell people to limit the fat initially or break it up. So instead of eating a big, giant breakfast of bacon and eggs where there's a lot of fat, you might have to eat some smaller meals to start with until you get used to handling a bit more fat that makes sense do you ever cheat do you ever do you, and if you do what is a cheat for you what do you like yeah so i don't like sit there and plan like i'm going to cheat with this and stuff like that you know i mean i'll consider you know i mean depending on what you're saying eggs would be a cheat i guess i mean okay. you know from red meat but i, I don't really i mean like I a bowl really of blueberries would you ever sit down and just eat a bowl of blueberries or a piece of fruit I, or I, something? I don't do that i mean what i've done is i mean I mean, fruit was something, you know, sometimes my, my girlfriend who is, uh, was vegetarian now is 95% carnivore. She sometimes will, you know, be cutting up these fruits and wow, this, this watermelon is great to have a bite. And so I'll, I'll occasionally have a bite and say, oh, that's good. Yeah. But generally uh, that's pretty rare. Um, what I have done is like on my children's birthday, they'll have a birthday cake and it'll be kind of a traditional, just a regular old cake. Mm-hmm. And I've had a piece of that and I remember one year I, I had it and I reacted really badly. It was like it had a bunch of crap and I don't know what it was. I think it had some soy and some other crap in there. And I literally had to go puke. Wow. Uh, and then the next, you know, six months later, my, my little daughter had a birthday and she had like some kind of cheesecake. And so I had a piece of that and I, I was fine. I didn't right. have any issues. But I don't, you know, it's not something I, I feel like I need to cheat every once in a while to refill my glycogen stores or anything like that. I don't, I just, I, I don't think about it. Yeah. I don't like, I don't sit there and beat myself up about it. You know, if, if it happens, it happens, but yeah, I can count literally in a year. I can count on my hand, you know, maybe, maybe three or four times a year, I'll have a piece of cake on my kid's birthday. Maybe I'll have a bite of fruit. You know, if my girlfriend's cutting it up, but I, it's not a significant part of my diet at all. I do it every couple of weeks because it keeps me on the overall diet myself. Like yeah. that's, that's yeah. how I stay disciplined is knowing that in a couple of weeks, I can have a bowl of ice cream and it'll be all right, you know, and then when I have it, I'm done with it and I don't need it for another couple of weeks, but it's like, it's sort of that little carrot and stick, you know, it just keeps me disciplined, so to speak. And, and, 
because I crave change and variety and things like that. But um, I want to let people know how they can get a hold of you because I think what you're doing, and I agree with you, I think it's probably not for everybody. And um, But for some people that I have talked to that I thoroughly, fervently believe and the pictures I've seen and the, the anecdotal evidence that I've seen, that some element of this, I think, is for everybody. Some element of it. So I would like people to talk to you. I'd like people to get to know what's going on, what's out there, what you provide for them at MeetRx.com. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so at MeetRx.com, you know, first of all, it's resources. We've got, you know, there's tons of resource. We've got all kinds, obviously, more testimonials than anywhere else on the planet on this stuff. Hundreds and hundreds of people. We've got support meetings every day, all day long, various different, you know, categories, whether it's diabetes or women's or moms with kids or exercise people or people with autoimmune disease or gut health problems or mental health issues or you know aging populations so we've got all these different categories of people i have a meeting every day seven days a week which i host for the members you know sometimes we'll have a vip guest and we'll do a little we'll turn it into a podcast out of an interview but i generally am there every day of the week answering whatever question comes up anybody wants to ask me a question i'm happy to answer you know and, and help, help them on their journey um i think that uh what we are figuring out is, you know, we're learning as we go because we're getting so much contribution from this wonderful community of people that are willing to share their experience. And then we'll be able to turn that as time goes on into more and more resources. So we'll be able to collect from the population and say, hey, you have disease X, Y, and Z, and, you know, you're a 52-year-old female. Well, this is what the other 52-year-old females with similar conditions was, was were able to do. And these were the things that, you know, work for them. And so as we build that, we'll be able to kind of build it up from the bottom up rather than from the top down, which is the typical medical one, big pharma model right. where they kind of, you know, look at the end point, which is to make a billion dollar drug. How can we get this distributed down to the masses? You know, whereas we're like, let's see what works from the bottom up. Let's see what's already working for the masses and how do we get that, you know, implemented to, to more people. Makes absolute sense. Um, I am in this in terms of the dietary stuff when I talk about it um, because I want people to get healthier, not because I, I'm i dogmatic or anything like that. And I know that that's your case as well because I've heard, I've heard you enough in the media to know that you're not dogmatic about it. You are what you are, but I think you want people to get better. So if, if people are listening to this and they're saying, I just couldn't do that, um, but if they could just do one thing, what would you tell them? Well, I think the first thing is, I mean, the first thing is the desire to to to, to improve your health if, if if you're not where you want to be. So you got to be able to do that. And then I think it's I think it's really to realize that your physician and, and most of the people in medicine are not really they don't really know much about nutrition. They're they're just parroting stuff they've heard. They're not really authorities on that. So don't be afraid to try things, whatever it is. I mean, try it and be objective and listen to your body and see how it responds because. We unequivocally do not know what's going to make us live the longest life. There's just no data out there, nor will there ever be any data out there that's credible that can tell us, you know, this is the best diet for you or me or anyone else. It's going to live, make you live longer, sort of the healthiest, or avoid disease X, Y, or Z. So you have to get healthy today. So focus on getting yourself healthy today and tomorrow and, and then go from there. Yeah, I love it. Dr. Sean Baker, we appreciate your time today. Very appreciate it. I've got a lot of respect for you and what you're doing. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat. I know we went longer than I said we would, but it was a fascinating conversation. So, 
That's great. I'm just glad my, my phone didn't die. It looks like we're good, so that works. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Thanks, Leland. All right, guys. That's a fascinating conversation. I got a lot of respect for that guy. Remember to check out his website, meetrx.com. Just a reminder, nothing in this conversation was meant to be medical advice, even though we were talking to a medical doctor. But again, I do have a lot of respect for Sean and uh, and the stuff that he's done and the way he's helping to make people healthy. Check out his website and go to the success stories and see for yourself. Big thanks to Louisville Cabinets and Countertops for their help with this program. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, literally, I will not let anybody pro- uh, uh, advertise on this podcast that I don't fully believe in. And uh, they did our kitchen and master bath in our home before we moved to Colorado, and I swear by them. So if you're thinking about redoing your kitchen or you're a do-it-yourselfer or you're a contractor, the quality of stuff and service that you're going to get from Louisville Cabinets and Countertops is second to none. So check them out. Stop by the showroom and talk to Kelly, George, or Michelle. They're at 6200 Hit Lane right on the border of Oldham County and Louisville. If you're in southern Indiana, Louisville, or Oldham County, these are your guys. They really are. Their work ethic is second to none. And as you know, those of you that know me for a long time, man, you either work big or you go home, man. And their work ethic is working big. They get it done. And so I really appreciate them. You can give them a call at 502-930-3304 or go to their website, LouisvilleCabinetsAndCountertops.com. That's it for me. Thanks to my co-host and Cameron Mills, uh, co-host and uh, co-executive producer Cameron Mills. He was not here today, but he'll be back with us soon. Uh, big thanks to uh, Dynamics Audio Productions in Lexington, Kentucky for their help with the audio on this program and JP Web Design for our website. And most of all, most importantly, big thanks to you and the thousands of you who download this podcast every week. I love you all so much. I can't even put it into words. For now, we are on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And for the foreseeable future, we are on the iHeartRadio app. So you can download us. Search The Disruption Zone and uh, get a subscription to the podcast. It's free. That way, new, fresh episodes will be delivered to your phone as they pop up. And I do quite a few a week now these days. So I'm doing three this week. Um, up next, Chris Peranto, one of the heroes of Benghazi. So you're going to want to share this with your friends, and let's get the message out to as many people as we can. So, again, big thanks to you. I'm Leland Conway, the Disruption Zone. <laughs>